And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, what, whatever the case may be in this rotating sphere, which is in great turmoil and consternation tonight. And so we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Now, you probably remember that what I do on the other side of midnight as I try to open with some news. Well, you all know what the news is. It's COVID-19, 24-7. So tonight what I want to do is I want to do something that will stand back and kind of give us some context. Because this too, as my grandmother used to fondly say, shall pass. And when it passes, what's the world that we're going to be confronting? Well, tonight... I'm going to try to introduce you with a list of very interesting players to the next in, in the next three hours to kind of where do we go from here? What's the context? What's what's the extraordinary thing on the horizon, which regardless of the virus currently scurrying around the planet is going to change everything. That's the that's the context of tonight's show. And we're dealing with it at all different levels from the. Uh, engineering, to the political, to the technical, to the inspirational, to the metaphysical, because there's a huge metaphysical dimension to all this. I mean, kind of look at the world. And if you kind of read what I wrote about it in the promo tonight, all kinds of things are going on. And they're each one of them world shaking in their own right, except they're all happening at once. It kind of reminds me of that old joke, you know, why did God create time to keep everything from happening at once? Well, unfortunately, God took a vacation, I guess, because everything is happening at once. Now, the interesting thing is, can we actually put a through line through all these events? And at some level, are they in fact connected? And I don't mean in a kind of an airy-fairy, you know, well, you know, everything's connected, that kind of thing. I'm talking about very specifically, are there behind-the-scenes events and players moving pieces on a board to where we're getting what we're getting, not because it's just the luck of the draw, but because, in fact, these things that look superficially totally disconnected, in fact, are part of an underlying story an underlying connectivity, an underlying um, gestalt. I guess that's a pretty good word. So let me, let me take us back decades, literally, <clears throat> to 1950. 19.5, everybody. In 1950, uh, George Powell brought out an extraordinary movie. The movie was called Destination Moon. And this film did such interesting things to people's psyches because it introduced the general public through the mass medium of communications back in 1950, film, movies, going to the theater. We'll do that again someday. It introduced them to the idea of literally a manned flight to the moon, except it was a little bit different. It had, it had a kind of a different uh, aspect because instead of being a huge government program backed by the resources of the United States, full faith and credit and all that, the film written by Robert Heinlein and uh, with other people like uh, Rip Von Ronkel, uh, James O'Hanlon, it was from a novel by Bob Heinlein. And one of my favorite artists actually did the illustrations, Chesley Bonstell, who we've talked about and we're going to talk about again tonight. Anyway, this was a tour de force. This was the first presentation, a super accurate technical presentation of what it would be like if human beings in the United States of America, if they in fact pooled their resources, their industrial resources, and took men from the good old USA to the moon and back for the first time.
in the film, there's a sequence of dialogue that perhaps explains what uh, what I've been trying to tell you for the last couple of minutes, uh, perhaps even better. So let's let's just kind of take a listen. And I have to. It's Mercury Retrograde, folks, so maybe we won't be doing certain things properly, but we will get through them, such as this. The moon. Okay. Now, listen, tell me. I did tell you. The next rocket we build is going to the moon. Let's go to lunch. I'm serious, Jim. No, you can't be. It's too fantastic. The moon... Impossible. Even with an atomic energy engine, exhaust velocity potential of 30,000 feet a second, what? thrust of 3 million pounds. Why, even Jess Spewley's atomic engine has only limited use. He hasn't come close to designing a mobile unit. Cargraves has spent the past two years on it. He's not only designed it, he's tested it. His scale model ran for an hour and 23 minutes before it blew up. That's incredible. I saw it, Jim. Good grief, man. And the government hasn't taken that over? It's peacetime, Jim. The government isn't making that kind of appropriations. Well, they'll need the rocket one of these days, and if it's not ready, the government will do the job. And they'll turn to you, to private industry, to do it. Government always does that when it gets in a jam. It has to. This time, I figured we might be ready for the government. Preparedness isn't all military, Jim. What about the money? That's not the problem. It's production. That's why I came to you. You're a production man. The problem right now is one of research, designing special materials, the pooling of resources, specialized skills, engineering brains, industrial capacity. No single company could possibly do it. But combined American industry, sparked by Jim Barnes, could put a rocket on the moon within a year. Well, what do you say, Jim? Do we go to lunch or do we go to the moon? And that was how it was supposed to begin. Then a little thing called the Cold War intervened, and NASA was created out of the old NACA. And instead of turning to private industry to assemble the resources, what NASA did was to assemble the industrial resources through a government program And you all know, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. But now we have something fascinating going on. We have literally the rebirth, if you can imagine such a thing, of space itself, of the idea of men and women going into space. And this time, the second age of space, as I call it, is being spearheaded by none other then Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, multi-industrial billionaires with their fingers in many, many pies. And the most remarkable thing is, it looks like we are going to be redoing, kind of like a redo of the space age, the way it may have begun if the Cold War hadn't intervened. Now, to the rest of this morning or this evening's three hours, we're going to talk with a variety of guests about the idea of what this is going to do to spaceflight, what it's going to do to the economy, what it's going to do to inspiration, to kids in school who, like me, you know, decades ago were inspired by John Glenn and NASA and the idea of going to the moon. All of that has now been, in essence, reset. And the most interesting thing, is that there is a crossover between the NASA program established over 50 years ago and the second age of space, private industrial space programs launching now because NASA, a few days ago, gave a contract to Elon Musk and SpaceX to take American astronauts to and from the surface of the moon. And this is really kind of interesting because just, well, let me not get ahead of the story. Let me take you back to 1952. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, you're going to want to do that for most of the show this morning, and you click on tonight's banner, which says in great bold letters against his remarkable starship, 
what's he really up to? Musk just launched the second age of space. And you scroll down on that page. That's our guest page tonight. Um, or you can click on the fast links that are right under my little intro there. That will take you to my items. The first one, item number one, is the full-length movie, Destination Moon, produced by George Powell and authored, as I said, by many authors, three in total, one of whom was Robert Heinlein, adopted in terms of script from his novel and illustrated when they had super artistic scenes like On the Moon by Chesley Bonstell. That entire movie is there. You just click on it. It plays. It's being promoted by, you know, the folks that originally, I think, produced it. Those companies change hands over and over and over and over. But if you want to see this movie, click on that link, and it will give you a context of the 1950s, which are now being reprised in the 21st century with all the concomitant extraordinary implications of democratizing space. Because if there's one watchword for what we're going to try to do tonight, it's the idea of what happens when you open up the space frontier, when you make it accessible to, quote, ordinary people, to, quote, ordinary industry, um, to, quote, ordinary artists, creatives, novelists, filmmakers. And we, you in this audience, if you're a regular listener to The Other Side of Midnight, We know what's out there. We know what's waiting. The question is, do they? Does does Elon Musk know what's waiting? Well, let's kind of leave that aside and go to item number two. Because the launching of this uh, first onslaught, this first uh, uh, promotional um, PR effort to get Americans excited about going where no one had gone before, namely the moon, actually began in 1952, about a couple years after Destination Moon premiered, in a magazine called Collier's. Collier's does not exist anymore. It went the way of the dodo and other hard copy publications over the years. But its legacy lives on because the editorial staff at Collier's decided, um, under the the, uh, mandates of some very interesting editorial folks, to do an expose in several different issues. And so item number two is their first issue of Collier's beginning in March of 1952, laying out Werner von Braun's um, amazing technological tour de force of how with existing technology, men could go to the moon with private enterprise, not the government, but private enterprise. Notice how that all changed eventually. Number three is a kind of a headshot looking at these guys around the table. At the head of the table is Werner von Braun, and you've got people there like, oh, let me read you some names. You've got um, Willie Lay, Dr. Heinz Haber, uh, Fred Whipple. Uh, Dr. Whipple is the originator of the uh, dirty snowball model of comets. And on the far right, you've got Chesley Bonstell, and I left out on the far left a guy named Rolf Klepp, who was a big, big name back in those days. And, of course, no one remembers him now. These people all got together, and they created this series in the era of pre-internet, pre-basically everything that we now take for granted. And in that milieu, they were able to excite a whole generation of engineers and scientists and writers and plumbers and doctors and nurses and a whole panoply of American society to the idea that in fact, humankind, Americans hopefully first, could and would someday go to the moon. Now we flash forward the film by tens and tens of years to a couple, three weeks ago when Elon Musk as the penultimate accomplishment of his dream with the uh, Crew Dragon spacecraft, successfully sent two astronauts into orbit to rendezvous with the International Space Station, where they are. And I think they're going to be staying up there until August. We're going to talk about why uh, later in the show. 
But with that demonstrated launch, with that demonstrated capability, um, some very interesting things transpired. Take a look um, at uh, 5A. All right. Number four is the actual replay of the launch of Demo 2, which was the Crew Dragon with two American astronauts on board. Very thrilling. And of course, you can see one of the features that Musk has introduced into the technology, which makes possible the things he wants to do without the atomic engine described in Destination Moon. It used to be thought that with chemical rockets, you couldn't really do much of anything. I mean, the Saturn V was over 6 million pounds in weight, had uh, 7.5 million pounds of thrust to take off, and sent a little 100-ton capsule and package of lunar module and service module and command module to the moon, to the surface of the moon and back. But you only get back in, in his dream, this is Von Braun, a tiny fraction of the payload that you launch into space. One of the stunning innovations that Musk has introduced is the idea of routine, everyday reusability. Because if you do not throw the rocket away, if you bring it back and use it again and again and again, like a 747, it totally changes the economics and thereby the engineering of going into space and even going with chemical rockets to and from. Now, if you look at number 5A, which is right under, under number 4, this is a painting by Bonstell, um, derivative from Destination Moon, showing the ship sitting in a northern crater in Mare, uh, I, I forget, they landed very northern on the moon above, I think, 60 degrees latitude. And in that position, the crater is in night, the tops of the crater rim are lit by sunlight. The half Earth is glimmering in the sky, two degrees across. And the astronauts have debarked from their atomic-powered spaceship with fins, with wings, because, of course, it would ultimately be coming back to the surface of the Earth and it would need wings to land. Exactly the same as if we scroll down to 5B, this is an actual uh, image of the Starship, the upper 160 feet of the total 390-foot-tall big Falcon rocket that is going to launch this extraordinary adventure into space, into Earth orbit, to the moon, and someday, according to Musk, far, far beyond. Now, one thing you might want to notice in that photograph in 5B is that, in fact, if you see the stars in the background, that's a real-time exposure. And in all the images I have seen, countless images, you know, NASA does imagery with Orion kind of carefully positioned in the background. You'll get astronaut images of the Earth, and there'll be Orion above the air glow of the curved horizon. Orion, 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 Orion. Elon Musk, in posting this promo shot of an actual mock-up of his starship, his 100-person carrying capacity spacecraft. Let me say that again. 100 people or the equivalent cargo and then some can be carried by Musk's vision of a real spacecraft that leaves the Earth, goes to a destination, turns around, comes home, is reused like a 747. If you look at that star field, that bright star over on the right is part of Musk's messaging because he has made the Collier's team and the team that Von Braun assembled, frankly, look like pikers by comparison because Musk is a multi-level marketing guy in addition to being a multi-level engineering genius. And so that Starfield behind his prototype stainless steel Starship sitting there on the coast of Texas one night when he did a live demo around the world via television explaining what was going to happen, that star field on the right depicts an actual image of the closest, most brilliant star to planet Earth, namely Sirius. And Sirius 
plays a major role in some of the discussion we're going to have later this morning. Moving down, number six, this is the actual trajectory of um, Musk's proposed circumnavigation trip around the moon. He was originally talking about doing this with a Dragon spacecraft and a Falcon Heavy launcher a um, couple, couple years ago. And then, and I think I'm not on unfirm ground when I say this, because of things moving in the dark, moving in the background, he decided to turn his focus to building an even bigger spaceship, an even bigger real spacecraft. And so this trajectory has been deferred. It could take place in 2022 or 2023 or 2024. Any one of those dates would precede by months, if not years, the current plans for NASA to go back to the moon with the Artemis official NASA government program. Again, illuminating kind of why private industry was looked upon as the folks that may do this first in those um, halcyon days of the 1950s, the 19.5s, because private industry, and Musk has demonstrated this, can turn on a dime. It can be flexible. It can streamline schedules. It can reduce bureaucracy. It can accelerate the timeline. It can do the things that the big, ponderous uh, ship of state, uh, President Obama once compared the United States to an ocean liner. Unfortunately, he compared it to the Titanic, I think. <clears throat> it can do things, private industry can, that the government would like to do, but for some reason never gets around to doing because it's mired and anchored in layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy. I mean, Musk really redesigns rockets on the pad. He's famous for last-minute changes, and they work. So if you go down now to number seven, you will see what the Starship in lunar orbit looks like in this artist's um, impression. And it's going to follow initially what's called a circumlunar free return trajectory, meaning you launch probably from the... Uh, shores of texas galveston bay there where they have i think at boca chica is the name of the place they're building the spacecraft and they're going to launch it <clears throat> from not too far away they will not be launching or maybe in the future they'll be launching from cape canaveral musk is going to have his own launching platform now if you look at item number 7b this is an artist's conception of what being inside the starship in the nose with all those tetrahedral windows will look like. And Andrew, I'm, I'm sure you can imagine floating there in zero gravity, sketch pad in hand and depicting the lunar surface below and outside the extraordinary panorama view. Well, it looks like if you go to number 8A, that, that Musk has kind of borrowed a bit from Chesley Bonstell and Werner von Braun, because in number 8A, you can see a Bonstell painting showing the beginnings of the installation of a moon base a la von Braun's vision, <clears throat> and it had big cargo-carrying spacecraft landing, like huge skyscrapers, not like the little Lem, but these are, you know, hundreds of feet high, kind of like the Starship, and they have internal uh, cargo carrying capacity and the way you get the cargo to the lunar surface is you lower it by a crane which swings out and lowers the heavy pieces to the lunar surface well if you look down at 8b this is a artist image of the starship on the moon lowering a moon rover by means of a crane from the carload uh, carload from the cargo bay in the bottom of the spacecraft, exactly kind of like Von Stell envisioned in his painting in 8A. And then if you go down to uh, number nine, remember we talked about Jeff Bezos is going to the moon and he's talking about uh, using the uh, blue moon lander that he's been developing along with his new Shepard and new Glenn and new Armstrong boosters. Well, this is a kind of an inside joke. Eight show, I'm sorry, nine shows um, 
Musk Starship lowering out of the payload bay on a crane, Bezos lunar lander to the lunar surface. <laughs> and the inside joke is Musk is betting Bezos that the only way that Bezos is going to get to the moon is if Musk takes his spacecraft in a starship and lowers by crane to the surface. Number 10. Number 10 is really interesting because just a few weeks ago, in all the excitement leading up to the launch of Demo 2, the demonstration of Musk's private enterprise manned or human spacecraft that could go to ISIS, can go to the moon, can go to Mars, and maybe someday far, far beyond, he sent um, a, uh, I'm sorry, NASA awarded contracts totaling nearly a billion dollars in the Artemis program to three private company contractors to develop a lunar lander, kind of like the Grumman lunar module, except for the much more accelerated and expensive SLS program and Project Artemis. And in the running were an unknown company called Dynetics, Blue Origin, which is Bezos' company, and oh yes, there is SpaceX. Now, something very curious happened after the award of the contract to, to Musk to develop a lunar lander. Because everybody knows, because he's announced it, what the lunar lander is going to be. It's the Starship. I mean, imagine. I mean, one of the NASA guys, after the contract was awarded, said in comparison to the other players, he said, well, inviting Musk to develop the lunar lander is, lighting, is like inviting a Gatling gun to a paintball party. Because look at that starship, 160 feet tall, multiple, I think it weighs something like 3 million pounds fully fueled. I mean, this is gargantuan moon exploration <clears throat> via Musk's vision and private industry uh, to boot, and it's, it's there in, in uh, extraordinary measure. Well, what happened right after this announcement of the contract took place? Well, I'll tell you what. Kind of just everybody hold your places. We're going to take a short break here. And when we come back, I will finish, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story, because the rest of the story is what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the evening. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references fed through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. 
The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, seven to nine PM Pacific time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight on this Saturday, June 27th. And moving back to what we were discussing before, um, this is a really remarkable story, and it has all kinds of permutations. So let me kind of go back to the plot here. Um, Right after the contract was awarded by NASA to three uh, private industry competitors, Dianetics, Blue Origin, remember that's Bezos, and SpaceX, that's Musk. Something bizarre happened. With less than a week to go uh, to the launch of Demo 2, remember this is Musk's human rated spacecraft launched to ISIS or low Earth orbit on a Falcon 9. The Falcon 9 first stage is reusable and landed back on the drone ship successfully. Now, dozens of times. Remember when George Norrie on the air one night told me when I laid this out, he said, oh, Musk will never do that. That's impossible. And I said, George, you got to be kidding. Well, proven me correct and George not correct because Bezos is going to be in great competition against a guy who can actually reuse spacecraft, reuse rockets, slash the costs of going to and from the moon. Well, About a week before Demo 2, which was going to make all this real, kind of solidify it in 3D by launching two NASA astronauts on the first privately owned rocket in history into space. Remember, even though industry was a contractor to NASA back in the good old days of NASA and Apollo and Mercury, Gemini and all that, the the rockets and the spacecraft were not owned by the companies. They were owned by the government, by NASA. That's the big difference here. By literally letting a contract from NASA to Musk for development of the landers, part part of Project Artemis, a whole new political, economic, and social path has been opened up. The democratization of space in a way whose implications, except maybe for our panel tonight, no one is properly envisioning, 
except maybe this guy. Because the head of human spaceflight for NASA, with one week to go for a mission on which everything depended, nothing could go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. That's an old joke. His name is Doug Levero. He suddenly quits with one week to go. The NASA guy in charge of the Demo 2 mission at NASA headquarters, he quits. And nobody knows why. All he said, in a kind of an oblique uh, Emily Dickinson fashion, is he'd made a major mistake and he had to step down. Now, we still don't know what that mistake is. My bet, and some industry insiders all seem to kind of concur, is his mistake was in letting a contract to Elon Musk to develop the lander for the moon, for Project Artemis. Because you know what uh, Musk is going to do. He's going to take the whole damn starship and make NASA's SLS-1 and the government's billions and billions and billions of dollars of investment kind of look like, oh, maybe we could have gone back to the destination moon scenario. Anyway, another implication and mystery to be discussed. So we've got... um, We've now got Musk with a contract. We've got a successful Demo 2 uh, spacecraft, the uh, Dragon Crew Dragon, attached to ISIS, the International Space Station, firmly docked. Maybe we'll be there through August, may come home early. Another mystery we'll talk about later this morning. Then what happens? Item number 12 in Radio with Pictures in my uh, section um, on the guest page. Elon Musk sends a tweet. I'm sorry, not a tweet. Well, I guess it was a tweet. And then followed up by an email to all of the SpaceX employees stating that with the successful launch of Demo 2, the Crew Dragon carrying two American astronauts, the entire company now should focus as its top priority on development, test, and operational flight of the Starship spacecraft he's developing now given his timeline of doing things before compared to the big heavy overwhelmingly cumbersome government inflexibility of doing essentially the same things anybody want to bet that musk is going to have a complete mission to the moon by himself long before the 2024 date of project artemis within President Trump's imagined second term? I would not bet against Elon Musk if you paid me a million bucks because he is full of interesting surprises. He has a motivated team. He now has NASA money, money, money. And you put it all together, and the guy who's brought more rabbits into uh, the 3D than I can imagine from that tall hat that he wears at uh, uh, some of these places like Chichilla, um, I would not bet against Elon Musk. Elon Musk, I think, is going to take a private enterprise crew, not only into lunar orbit, like the Japanese billionaire that he is partnered with, and the artist that the billionaire, who is an artist himself, is handpicking for the first flight around the moon. I'm betting that Musk is simply going to demonstrate that private industry when it is unleashed in the hands of a true multi-level genius can accomplish as part of the American experience, almost anything. So let's switch gears. All right. In fact, I'll tell you what, let me, let me introduce our our players this morning because we have a cast of thousands. Uh, We are joined by Tim Crawford, who is my longtime um, distributor of everything Enterprise Mission. Uh, Tim has a very long bio. Um, he started UFO TV, <clears throat> uh, aka UFO Central Home Video in the 90s, and he was the first person to place New Age, spirit culture, conspiracy, suppressed science conspiracy, and UFO documentaries into a video rental format across America, stores all over the country. And he was also the first person to get a conspiracy film into Walmart 
which just happened to be a video about Area 51. Well, there's a lot more to Tim, but uh, you can just read his bio on the other side of midnight. Tim is one of our panel. Good morning, Tim. There you are. Have to lift the right pot. Okay, if you'll hold it there. Go ahead. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And we will get back to you in a moment. Okay. The problem with Skype is you've got this kind of time lag. All the networks are now experiencing the time lag of the Internet, and they hate it. So I'm sorry to step on your lines there. We're going to bring you back in a moment to talk about Musk, because there's a very important reason why Tim is with us tonight, to talk about Elon Musk. Uh, Other panelists, Andrew Curry. He's our resident artist. He does murals and illustrations for uh, major film companies. He does TV commercials. He has a degree in art design and a master's in art therapy, and he will be joining us momentarily. Bob Harrison, who was our guest from across the pond, Bob's a keen investor, has developed something called the Sidonia Quest website, has done extraordinary work in the Mars Sidonia domain, is part of our forthcoming book on Mars, which will be coming out. We will actually be able to announce in the next month or so a firm timeline as everything is falling into place. So Robert is with us. Uh, then Ron Gerbron, who is a member of the Enterprise Imaging Team and an unqualified generalist. I mean, Ron knows something about everything, and he prides himself on being a generalist. He just doesn't take a very good picture. So, you know, kind of ignore the picture. Uh, let me scroll down here. We've got Keith Morgan, who used to be an advisor on the electronics team to Ted Koppel on um, uh, Nightline. Um, Kintia, our executive producer, who, of course, is also the artist who did all the brilliant sculpting of the face on Mars decades ago and is working on the book, laying it out so that it's going to have the major impact that perhaps the Collier's Magazine series did many decades ago. She's with us. And I don't know whether have, have we been joined by Tim Saunders yet. Someone tell me. Deafening silence. Not yet. Okay. And we may or may not have Tim Saunders, who was released from prison, I'm sorry, quarantine in, 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 in Florida, was able to fly back to Turkey, only to be put in two-week quarantine by Erdogan, so he can't see his family yet. And he's stuck in some hotel room somewhere in Turkey, and it's he's jet-lagged, and so he may wake up for the show, or he may not. But he will be part, obviously, of future programs, and if he does join us, he will have some very interesting things to contribute. So, um, did I miss anybody? Um, I th- you got me. Uh, Will. I haven't been, Will? I've been on the show in so long. I, I hear your voice is all poppy and exciting. It's been a while. <laughs> and I can see how I, I could have easily been forgotten, Kathea. <laughs> and I also have to get to Georgia. So let me go down to Tim, if I can find where Tim is. Uh, I don't see where Tim is. Darn, 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 darn. Oh, no. I'm, I'm missing Tim. Not, not Tim. Not Tim. I'm sorry. Uh, Will, let me do And this. Georgia. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned Georgia a moment ago. Okay. Well, I'm clicking on Will, and I don't see a fast link to his bio. Uh, he runs IT for a major medical company that does not want its name mentioned on the other side of midnight, so we don't, out of courtesy. But his real claim to fame is he has single-handedly practically created a global community of activists looking at Images of anomalies on the moon, on Mars, and other places. All kinds of websites springing up. And uh, Wills is called What's Up in the Sky. And so he will be talking about the public reaction to Musk democratizing space. And last but not least, Georgia Lambert, who spent many years with uh, Manly Hall there in Los Angeles. She is our resident metaphysician. And she asked earlier, she says, well, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. And I said, just listen, you'll see why your input is going to be crucial tonight. Just stay tuned. So back to Mr. Crawford. Mr. Crawford, among your surprises, you have just initiated a series of Tim Crawford productions of original film content to be distributed through your company. And it turned out, as you sent me a very nice little advert earlier in the week, that your latest film is on Elon Musk. Take it away, Tim. <laughs> well, it, it's been an interesting journey. Um, 
right after that day uh, when the astronauts were taken to the space station, my production team spent the next 30 days uh, full-time scouring the world for every interview Elon ever did and every bit of data and information that we could find on him and his creativity. And uh, it's an interesting story to the extent that uh, the first movie, we call it uh, uh, Elon, Inventing the Future, SpaceX. It'll be followed up by two more features. Uh, One will be Inventing the Future, uh, Tesla. And then the third one will get into the uh, Gigafactories and Neuralink and uh, the rest of his technology is not covered in the first two. So it literally will take three feature films to cover the breadth of uh, material on this man. It's also interesting to note, by the way, that Mariner 9 went up in May 30th, 1971. Of course, the Russians put up their probe May 14th, 16 days earlier, but we got there first. Uh, so uh, Mariner 9, May 30th, 1971, it was launched, and Elon was born the following month, June 28th, oh my uh, 1971. I just find that interesting congruence, you know, how uh, uh, going to, the, to Mars is such a big thing. And, of course, Mariner 9, uh, Richard, you know the history better than, than uh, anyone here probably, but uh, essentially it was the first probe to go to Mars, orbit the planet, and send back 7,000 photos of the uh, Martian surface. It was the first time. So and it's, and uh, it, it totally upended our previous perception of Mars from Mariner 4, Mariner 6, Mariner 7, which were just flybys, because having the luxury of going into orbit around Mars with two very good state-of-the-art cameras back in 1971. It got there in November. Unfortunately, it got there when one of the biggest dust storms in uh, contemporary Martian history was occurring. So in looking down and taking hundreds of pictures, every picture was just blank noise. In fact, one wag, oh boy. One wag at JPL said, well, they're giving us you know, pictures of bedsheets then they're giving us pictures of enhanced bed sheets because you could see nothing. And then is the dust. The entire Martian surface. Totally the covered. Martian surface. Totally. Just, just a brilliant, glowing, salmon-colored ball with zero features. Not even the bright white ice caps were visible. And then over the ensuing months, the dust began to settle and things began to appear. First the extraordinary shield volcanoes on a place called Olympus Mons, and then the canyon, the 3,000-mile-long Valles Marineris Canyon, named after Mariner 9 later. And Mars turned out in the Mariner 9 imagery to be totally, totally different than the lunar-like images, the 22 images sent back by Mariner 4. But by that time, Tim, and you know this well, all the press had gone away. And the revolution of the real Mars didn't percolate into American consciousness or the zeitgeist for decades as a place where, in fact, someday you might, in the words of Elton John, want to raise your kids. You know, there's also something else that I wanted to mention about Elon. You know, he is uh, he was inspired by the Apollo astronauts. And we found a, uh, an interview of him uh, by the folks at 60 Minutes. <clears throat> and in the interview, the interviewer mentioned to him about how Neil Armstrong and Gene Cernan had appeared before a congressional panel of some kind complaining about their concerns about uh, private industry going to space and that being pushed by the, uh, uh, you know, uh, by the, the, uh, um, Obama and, um, and essentially, you know, uh, uh, sort of making a negative reference to what Elon Musk was doing. And when he posed this question to him about how he felt about that, we have him on camera the dude practically went into, I mean, he was holding back tears. You can see because these guys literally inspired him. And, 
And, and you know, the 60 Minutes uh, interviewer, you know, uh, took a couple of passes at the question and dug a little deeper. And, you know, he was feeling it. And uh, he was really bummed out that, you know, he had wished that these guys would come to his factory and look at the technology that they're building um, and that it really hurt him because these guys inspired him. Well, I have a feeling we're looking at a generational perspective because Neil and Buzz and uh, Mike, they were raised on the arsenal system, NASA, farming out contracts, but having the final ultimate quality control. And I don't think they understood. I don't think they even still understand, or maybe maybe Buzz does now, because Delon has demonstrated all his bizarre off-the-wall ideas. They work. Takes a little while sometimes, and he doesn't sometimes meet the schedule, but he ultimately makes it work. And I think we're, we're kind of looking at a generational thing. They being raised in a government system in NASA to go and do what they did, they could not envision one company like one of the uh, stars of Destination Moon when he says private industry cannot possibly do this on its own. And ultimately they were shown to be, to be in, 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 incorrect. You know, in respect to his tweeting, we have uh, Wynn Shotwell on camera, who's the president and chief operating officer of SpaceX. And uh, whenever Elon tweets something that might be a little off color, she'll get on the phone and calm down the customers. <laughs> and so she's, I think, the voice of reason over there when it comes to, you know, uh, when he gets fast and loose um, with what's going on in his head publicly. But um, he kind of they shares make a great that, team, the two of those guys. He kind of shares that with another public figure. Let's see. Who am I thinking of? <laughs> Some maid who, who tweets kind of off the top of his head and people have to kind of call. You know, we, you know, we got, we have, we have our president on camera uh, where the interviewer asks Trump about Elon. And he said, Oh, I just talked to him the other day. You know, we've got to protect uh, our, 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 our brain trust of this country. You know, the, the, like the people that uh, like, like Edison who invented the light bulb and the, and, and, and the wheel. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of guys talking about we got to protect our people who invented the light bulb and the wheel. Well, you know, uh, people. Look, I, I, I am not a, a Trump fan. Everybody knows that. But I will stand up. Then, but I will stand up for no, no, no. That sentence, that paragraph, in his mind, made perfect sense. And when he said it, I knew exactly what he meant. You know, he's looking at the sweep of American history before relatively recently. We, as a nation, as a government, did not protect our most important product, which is research, the future, in industry. And he was kind of retroing in his mind, you know, that kind of thing over Edison, over Tesla, not the car, but the guy, that kind of thing. And, and see, when, 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 when Trump speaks, it almost takes a code to kind of decipher you know what he's saying. Remember, remember Kofefi. Yeah, his heart was in the right place. In the exactly. Okay. Um, yeah. Unless you have a really gangbuster story to to close out this this part of the conversation, I'm going to. Well, open- I think that the last the last thing I'll mention is is that uh, look what happened to the Lockheed Skunk Works folks. You know, eventually they were so successful, they were spinning out so much incredible technology. And then all of a sudden, the generals and congressmen are worried about one company being responsible for so much new technology that they, like, squashed them in the end. Yep. Creatively. And, and, and so, you know, there, there is that, that vibe. But I think it's different when you're, you know, a manufacturer of weapons for the military and you're a private company that's essentially working for NASA or, or, or taking on contracts. So, yes, you know. He's uh, a less of a threat than, say, for instance, the Lockheed analogy. Uh, but, you know, again, uh, the, the, the heat is going to start turning up. Well, I think it already has. Remember, making larger. Remember, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I teased the idea that right after Musk was awarded one of the three contracts to develop the lunar lander for Project Artemis, the guy who did it suddenly quits, saying he made a huge unnamed mistake. I think the, 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 the blowback he got 
from Lockheed, from Boeing, from all the big guys, basically drove Levero to quit because the mistake was he hired Musk. And you know what's going to happen. I mean, I, I would bet dollars to Navy Beans that Elon Musk is going to have American astronauts, including the first woman, on the moon a, a year or two before the planned Artemis deadline. And, of course, if that happens, it will only drag everybody else along. So ultimately, it's a win-win unless you're Lockheed or Boeing or poor Doug Lavaro. Okay, let's open up the panel. Well, when you got that – Hey, hey, hey Richard, you've noticed how Elon lately – I mean, literally, he's going through one of those like life-changing events. On May 1st, he said, I'm gonna, I don't need any possessions. I'm going to sell my houses. I think the – what was it? It only took a month and a half before the uh, – William – was it William Ding? He's a multimillionaire in China. Bought his house for $29 million, one of the pensions. He's got one more to sell. So he literally – I think he – He's one of those people who believes he's going to be living on Mars one day. He said, I don't need possessions, nothing here. You know, <laughs> he does it. He thinks he, one thing he does do a lot. He, he, when he's asked questions, he, he really does think it takes about a second or two before he, he answers. But that, that one little thing, whatever triggers in his head, it's, it's, it's amazing to watch. Okay. He's got, he's got kids though. And his wife had three uh, triplets in the first birth because of in vitro, and then and then twins in the second birth. So he's got five kids from two births, and his kids mean a lot. So he's got to have possessions for them. Okay, we're coming down to the. Uh, I'm sorry, going to the top of the hour. I'll get my clocks here. Mercury retrograde, folks. In when 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 people join in in the panel, if you would just introduce yourself because you're just voices to most people, they're not seeing you. So we need to identify. That was Will Farrer who is going to be talking about IT and connectivity and uh, his uh, grassroots movement of aficionados of all things moon and Mars a little later in the morning. Um, as I said, we're coming up to the top of the hour. We've got about two minutes. So why don't we – what I'm going to do this morning is for bumper music, I'm playing music from SpaceX. One of the really cool things about SpaceX – I mean, countdowns are kind of long and boring, and what, what SpaceX did – is it introduced to the countdown the idea of background music. So whenever they have a hold or whenever they're doing something where you don't see anything happening, they put on music, which basically uh, kind of echoes an old San Francisco radio station I used to listen to many decades ago called Music from the Hearts of Space. So in the breaks this morning, we're going to be listening, not only talking about Musk, we're going to be listening to music from Elon Musk. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs> 